The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Catelyn Moran, who, after having taught us how to build a woman and how to build a girl, has written a new book called What About Men? Catelyn, welcome. Now, you are kind of famously, some might say, a lady. So what qualifies (laughs) you to write this book? I think technically more of a woman than a lady. A lady suggests standards, which I simply don't live up to. I I think a lot of women and feminists will have a wry smile when they see the title What About Men? Because if you do spend most of your time talking about the ladies and the girls and the problems they're in, and then you do a public event and you spend an hour talking about women and girls, often the second or third question you'll be asked by someone in the audience is, yes, 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 women and girls, but what about men? And for the first five years I was asked that question, I admit that I was quite peevish in my response. (laughs) I was like, well... (laughs) I don't care. I've chosen to specialise in one half of the population, like a quite famously teen tits. Uh, Also, it would be the ultimate irony of feminism, would it not, if women had to solve the problems of women and girls and then had to solve the problems of men as well. But then time went on, I kept being asked the question. And then two years ago on International Women's Day, I had the inciting incident that starts my journey, which was I was doing an event in a college, 15 and 16 year olds, half girls, half boys, was there to talk about women and girls. And the boys kind of hijacked the session and they did not want to talk about the problems of women and girls. In fact, they said women and girls don't really have any problems anymore. Women, uh, feminism has done its job and indeed gone too far. Girls are winning and boys are losing and it's harder to be a man now than it is a woman. And why aren't we talking about the boys? And they were angry. And I find it fascinating when people are angry because anger is just fear brought to the boil. And these boys were obviously scared of what was happening to women compared to what was happening to them. And I was like, oh, okay. Given that materially, we know that women and girls are still disadvantaged. The pay gap still exists. We know that one in four of us will be sexually assaulted or raped. You know, kind of, we, we know the sort of, you know, we're still not represented proportionately in politics or economics or business or, you know, globally. So what is it that the boys are scared of and angry about? And the only thing I could think in the end is that the only thing that women have got that men don't have is feminism. We've had, particularly over the last 15 years, this massive upswell of positivity and inventiveness and this expanding of the lexicon and all these role models and books called things like 100 Kick-Ass Women from History and lists that are 50 women that are going to change the world. And boys have not had that. There are no books about, you know, undiscovered, brilliant, kick-ass heroes who are male from history. The idea of a list of 50 young men who are going to change the world seems weird. Uh, So I was like, okay, I need to clear the decks. I'm going to cancel my next project. I think the next part of my feminism is is looking at why young men particularly are angry with women and think feminism has gone too far. Because if the boys are this angry and boys are starting to radicalise and Andrew Tate is such a big thing, then that affects women. And and my feminism is about how do we help the women? And as we know, 50% of all the problems that women have are generally men, angry men, sexist men, many don't appreciate them, many don't understand them, abusive men. And we can't fix the girls until we fix the boys. 
So I was like, can I write a book that starts a conversation? I can't do all of it. I'm quite tired and it's only a book. <laughs> but could we could we start a book where we at least list all the problems, admit there's a problem and work out why this has happened, why we're in this state and, and start to suggest some solutions? And why do you think we are in this state? Because you say it's a younger generation thing that your inciting incident was teenage boys. Mm. Is it is that where the problem is? And why has it landed on that demographic? I think it's the last two generations. So like, so half, because I'm, I'm very aware. So there's that statistic, as you will know, as literary editor, that 80% of books that are bought are bought by women. And the good liberal men that I know of my generation, the dads, they've been very much like, well, this last 15 years of feminism, this concentration on women and girls is a recent and very relatively mild corrective to 10,000 years of patriarchy and Benny Hill chasing sexy schoolgirls around a tree. And so the men of my generation have been like, yeah, let the ladies take over. I'm going to keep quiet. I'm going to be, I don't want to make a fuss. I'm going to be stoic. So there wasn't that conversation. They were like, it's fine to not talk about men for a generation. But of course, if you're a 15 year old boy, all you've known all of your life is this world where there are feminist clubs at school and Beyonce is, you know, quoting Shimanda and Gozi Adichie on stage about we should all be feminists. And there's this joy and positivity and the sense of sisterhood and progress. And people keep saying things like the future is female. And at the same time, the only time you hear men and boys mentioned is when people are going, oh, typical men or typical straight white men, the patriarchy, toxic masculinity. And so into that void where my generation of men were like, let the ladies take the stage, we've got a generation of young boys who are not hearing anyone mentioning men unless it's negatively until Andrew Tate comes along. People like Andrew Tate, sort of radical online misogynists, who were going, no, masculinity is amazing. It's great to be a man. Men should be powerful again. Everything's gone wrong in the last 50 years. We need to go backwards. And that's scary for both girls and boys because he is not a great role model and it's also not a great business model for boys like you know if, if Andrew Tate is your hero then then you're looking at a career based on his advice which would be having a bunker in Romania and running a sex cam operation and then being arrested on accusations of sex trafficking if you're a 15 year old boy who's struggling to tidy up his bedroom in the morning and it's probably not great life advice to be <laughs> no it's not very attainable among other things Right? It's not practical. It's very unpractical. Exactly. So is your sense then that it's, I mean, we're often told that the kind of toxic ideas of people like Andrew Tate taking charge of the aspirations and ideas of younger men and younger boys is a kind of reaction to feminism. Is your reading that it's a reaction to the, the way in which 15 or 20 years of feminism have been mediated through, if you like, the older generation of, of men who, who kind of went thumbs up, let's let this go. Yeah, I think so. And like, you know, it's nobody's fault. This is the thing you can't like, you know, there are no perfect revolutions, you know, or cultural movements. There's always sort of like an equal and opposite reaction. And also, you know, for people of my age, you don't realise how quickly time passes. To me, this recent burst of feminism seems so recent. But then to me, the release of Blur's Park Life seems really recent. And then you suddenly realise to my daughter's generation, kind of this is all they've grown up with, which is great for the girls. But for the boys, there is this sense of unfairness. And and if you, you, know, you pull back historically, like in the last 150 years, things have changed immeasurably for women. Like 150 years ago, we couldn't own property. You know, we, we couldn't vote. You know, we, we were not, you know, represented in politics. So we couldn't run businesses. Marital rape was still legal in this country until 1990. But we've just, you know, over the last 150 years, feminism, this brilliant cultural crowdsourced 
a phenomenon, uh, to my mind, the greatest cultural invention that we've ever come up with as a species, has reversed all of that. And now women are in space and we're ruling countries and we're starting up businesses. And there's this sense that things are not only better than it was in our grandparents' days, but that our daughters and granddaughters will have even greater freedoms and powers and securities. But in the last 150 years for boys and men, nothing much has really changed. Sort of women did this land grab onto sort of traditionally male attributes like being powerful, being involved in politics, running businesses, wearing trousers, smoking cigarettes. But men didn't come and take anything from the world of women. And when you look at the problems that are listed uh, for boys and young men, it's that there are things that women do and are good at that they haven't come and taken or taken inspiration from because they're female and seen as lesser. Because if you run through, there's a chunky list of statistics that I go through at the start of the book. So boys are more likely to be excluded from school. They're more likely to be medicated for disruptive behavior. They're less likely to go on to further education. They're more likely to become addicted to pornography or drugs or alcohol. They make up the majority of the homeless population. They make up the majority of the prison population. And suicide is still the leading cause of death for men under the age of 50. And on top of that, one in five men over the age of 50 say they have no close friends. So that's a world in which there's a whole raft of problems there in which men are struggling in which no solutions are being offered. And to me, the solutions there seem to be taking on more feminine traits. Like we need to look at the way that education is run, but mainly it's about being able to have emotional connections, feeling part of something, feeling that you will be listened to and that it's not shameful to confess that you're struggling or that you're weak or you think you're losing and, and being able to talk about those problems. So I understand why boys feel a bit neglected because when you look at that raft of problems and the lack of solutions being offered, or that the only solutions are being offered are by people like Andrew Tate, who's saying all this misery, depression, anxiety, and failure, what you need is power over women. That will be what will make up for becoming addicted and failing at school and, and feeling suicidal. And of course, having power over women won't solve any of those problems. Rather than power, what those young men need is empowerment. They need to learn the skills to self-soothe. They need to learn to be able to communicate. They need to learn how to work in the educational system. They need to learn how to get help for problems of addiction. So my offer is feminism offers you empowerment, and that is what you really need. I mean, one of the central points you make is like men find it hard to talk about their emotions. They don't, you know, actively cultivate and maintain their friendships in a kind of you know, effortful way they're, you know, they feel that showing weakness is dangerous and that women are, they're much more communicative. They're much more emotionally available. They all find out about each other and ask questions about each other. I've seen you getting some stick. People saying this is essentially, these are kind of stereotypes and these are sort of men is from Mars, women from Venus kind of stuff. How would you respond to that? Where do you think these, these traits are coming from? And are they as universal as you described? Oh, yeah. No, no. So I've had to turn off my Twitter this week because I was yeah, getting huge amounts of abuse for it. And it's like, if none of this applies to you, that's great. Like, of course, not every, you know, you know, I write books about women and like I make generalizations in them. No one can write a book that accurately and precisely describes 4.4 billion people in the world, whether they be the female half of the world or the male half of the world. But even if you are, and I, I wish I could go on Twitter and say this, but there's no point in responding to abuse on Twitter. If you are a, a, a brilliant, emotionally literate man, he talks about all these problems as a really supportive network of friends and like this has never been a problem for you. I'm pretty sure you've got a friend who does struggle with it. You know, I'm pretty sure there's someone in your family who you know doesn't talk about their problems. At the moment, I've got loads of building work going on in my house and my house is filled with men 
big working class men doing stuff. And because they've seen me going in and out of the house to do promo and stuff, they've become quite emotionally invested in this book. They've been listening to me, to me on the radio, <laughs> kind of like coming back and going, oh, yeah, I heard you on Zoe Ball. Like I heard you on Chris Evans and stuff. And uh, I was talking to one of them, Will, he's 25. And he was going, yeah, seen on, seen on social media, getting a bit of stick about like, you know, people saying that, you know, you're generalizing about men sort of like, you know, not being able to talk about their emotions and stuff. And like, he was like, I'm 25. I come from Strood. Uh, and five of my friends have committed suicide and they're all men. And I don't know why any of them killed themselves. Cause I look back on the last conversations, for instance, that I had with my latest friend who committed suicide. And the last conversation we had was he told me he'd broken up with, with his girlfriend and I didn't even ask him why he'd broken up with his girlfriend. Like, I just didn't know what to say. You know, I didn't have that conversation with him. And then the next thing that happened was that he died. And he was like, you know, now I'm starting to think, I just look at me and all my circle of friends and we're just like, yeah, we don't know how to ask the follow-up questions. We're kind of scared of what might happen next, that we might not have the tools to deal with genuine raw misery and grief and depression and anxiety. And then another friend of mine was saying that she was talking to her, her husband about, um, getting therapy and he sort of asked questions about it for a couple of minutes and he was like but will I have to cry like is there a therapist I can see where I wouldn't have to cry and he was just horrified by the idea that that might happen he was like I will get therapy I know I'm modern enough to know that would be a good idea but if I have to weep it's an absolute no-go so even if you are a brilliant enlightened emotional man with this amazing network like you know I'm pretty sure you know someone who isn't because those stats are there you know the, the suicide rates mental health rates they're just a fact and why do you think we're like that I mean someone like probably like Andrew Tate or like Jordan Peterson would say male self-reliance and um or refusal to admit weakness is a sort of biological adaptive trait because you know if you admit weakness the mountain lion you're trying to hunt will you know, run towards Smear you and bite you. off your head or, or, yes. or laugh at you uh, even more terrifyingly. But then that's why it's interesting, is it? Because I'm saying, this is the thing, if you sit on Twitter and you're in the middle of a Twitter hoo-ha as I am, half the people I've got coming at me are going, it's an absolutely insulting generalisation to say that men can't talk about their emotions. Of course we do. Like how patronising of you to say that we don't talk about our emotions. Of course we do. And then the other half are going, men shouldn't talk about their emotions. Like that, that's an evolutionary adaptation. Like kind of like we're biologically not wired to it. And of course they can't see each other. So I'm just like, you guys need to get together and talk about this. Like I've just written book this <laughs> Starts this conversation rather than shouting at me why don't you argue this out together because you both seem very certain in your opinions but a lot of the pushback that I've seen I find it fascinating so one of the things I say in the book is that if you go into a bookshop I had this big realization when I went into a bookshop there's a huge women's section in every bookshop massive ones women inhale books about being a woman self-help books improvement oh what's all this about there's no man section and I think with this book, when I was talking about it this week, I suddenly realized that there hasn't been a book like this, like kind of like a, a general funny with many different subjects study of men from the point of view of women, which I think might be A, why it's causing a bit of a palaver because no one quite knows how to categorize it. But B, the pushback that I'm seeing is I think there are certain men who just really feel very uncomfortable with being talked about as a class. Like kind of like this this idea that men are neutral, they're v they're vanilla. Like kind of like they're just the neutral kind of standard human unit, and the idea that some kind of David Attenborough with tits has come along and gone, <laughs> yes, well this is what I've observed. Like kind of like 
and all done, I have to say, in a really loving way. This isn't a kind of circa 1986 Judy Birchall searing takedown of masculinity. You know, I hope it comes across as very warm, a totally good faith argument. You know, I keep being told there are problems with men and we don't talk about it. Okay, I'll do it. Like, kind of, I'll sit down and use the same tools that I use to talk about the problems of women to talk about men and have a look at it and just try and find a new way to talk about men that is warm and amusing and makes it easy to start difficult conversations about mental health or your children watching porn pornography or you know sort of aging or fear of mortality or all these things I'll try and do my kind of you know warm clowny mum kind of for Catelyn started the conversation what do you think about this chapter which I see as my primary function as a writer yeah and I'm interested in what you have to I mean you say there's no men's section of the bookshop and I'm just remembering and you touch on these things a little bit um like you talk about the 1970s men's movement about the generations because I remember sort of, I think it must have been the late 90s, there was this little burst of kind of proto manny books, right? sort of Neil Linden and Robert Bly, Iron John. Iron John, yeah, yeah. I mean, my dad wrote a book about being a house husband called Ironing John, which I thought was a... <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately less yeah. successful than Robert Bly's. But... I like it. I, I will buy that book. That's oh, good. Did. did it have lots of ironing tips, though? Did he know how to do sleeves and collars? Because that's oh, yeah. what I find difficult. Yeah, I had, a pic- really? I had a picture of him with an ironing board on the front cover. But so there, there have been these, these bursts of sort of mm. male consciousness raising or... or chest beating or whatever i mean what's i think those books that that 90s generation were kind of reaction you know same old complaint you know you've said 15 years of feminism and now people are worried feminism's gone too far that was it's been 15 years of feminism and feminism's gone too far is it is it just in every generation there's a kind of masculist pushback it's interesting. I looked into the history of like various men's movements and sort of like, you know, every 10 or 15 years, someone tries to get something going. So first of all, the the biggest effort at a men's movement was in the late 60s, early 70s. Sort of all the hippies were like, you know, maybe there's a different way of being a man. We don't want to be wage slaves. We want to be involved in our family's lives and all this stuff. And it founded, I mean, just the Wikipedia entry alone is quite poignant and heartbreaking. Uh, it founded on two rocks. One, men found collective action very difficult. They wanted to establish a hierarchy and so there was, it was immediately riven with infighting, which you see in the feminist movement as well. But the feminist movement became so big that it, you could just have all these different factions, but we we're all still generally moving in the same direction. But kind of like the men were just not so good at being collaborative. And the other big one was homophobia, that kind of this idea of becoming more tender and open, you know, physical contact, like all these things were sort of scuppered on the rocks of, well, that's a big gay. And interestingly, even though the, you know, the sort of teenage generation that we've got now Many of them are being radicalised by Andrew Tate and going in one direction. I also note that this generation is far better at being emotionally open and hugging. Like, you know, I see boys outside my daughter's school hugging, sort of like going, oh, your parents are going through a divorce. That must be really tough, mate. And kind of hugging and talking. And they're not scared to be more physically demonstrative. And that's gone hand in hand very notably. And I think not coincidentally with a massive drop in homophobia in this country. And so really oddly, we've always talked about the sort of alliance between straight women and gay men. But I, I think the fate of straight men is also far more tied into the straight of gay men, because the more that homosexuality is destigmatized, the more straight men are allowed to act in a way that we previously would have thought of as either feminine or gay. So that would be an interesting alliance. That I'd but like I mean, you, you and I are roughly the same age, I think, we're both kind of cresting late 40s. Yeah. And for our generation, which is where you talk about that, you know, it's a bit gay, homophobic abuse was, was kind of a playground standard. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, my impression from my own kids who are, you know, 14 and under is that actually homophobia is, like, really uncool. Yes, 
Exactly. In the sense that, that most of them, you know, before they've you know, even hit puberty, are coming home talking excitedly about, you know, feeling a bit vanilla because they haven't got an unusual gender identity or they'll say, oh, I think I might be Polly. Yes. I'm like, you're nine. Yeah, I know. You know. It's lovely. I love it. You have no idea. Yeah. I mean, we have to remember we are in a London bubble. Like, you know, when, when I go back to That's the true. Midlands, you know, kind of like, you know, you go to Bradford, there's not as many people walking around as I saw in a boy who was in junior school last week wearing, yes, I'm hopelessly gay badge. Like, kind of just thinking that's amazing. So, so yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's still very much a sort of a metropolitan phenomenon, but, but nonetheless, astonishing progress. But that I find that that is interesting that that is hand in hand with sort of the liberation of straight men has come through a decline in homophobia. Moving to kind of this younger generation, I mean, there are some things, it seems to me, that you're talking about, some problems in masculinity that are, that are kind of new and are features of the digital age. And one of them is this absolute saturation in online porn and really horrible online porn. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, if you wanted to find pornography, you had to comb the hedgerows down the side of the A24. Nature's boobies and, and willies. You know, maybe you'd, yes. find a, you'd find a scrunched up picture of a lady with her legs open and you know, yeah. one of her legs ripped off because yeah. the trumpet used. Oh, the case catalogue was still very much the primary source of most sexual stimulation. Like a lady in a bra in the, in the brasserie section of the uh, case catalogue was, yeah, for, for most men of my generation. But now, of course, it's completely different. There is a tsunami of this online stuff and this is the first generation that have grown up with it just everywhere and when I talk to parents they're kind of like well when should we have the talk about pornography like kind of you know I, I you know 13 was what I used to think but maybe 11 when they go to secondary school it's earlier than I'd like but that seems to be on the front foot and it's like no guys it's seven it's eight it's nine your child's entry to the world of pornography is absolutely predicated on the naughtiest almost troubled kid in your school the one who's just going to go over with the phone and go look at this it's disgusting or like look at this this is incredible and the problem with that is, A, we're not aware of it because no eight-year-old's going to come back and tell their parents they looked at a naughty thing. Like, kind of, they're very aware that they saw the taboo object and they should keep that secret from their parents. But secondly, of course, a child doesn't know what the deal is. Like, kind of, you don't just look at pornography and laugh at it or be horrified by it or be aroused by it. It's a two-way street. You look at the pornography, but the pornography looks into you. Because, of course, all of our sexual fantasies and preferences are massively predicated on what we know of sex, what we see of sex. So if you're seeing extreme online strangulation, girls with their heads down the toilets, rape fantasies, teens, you know, kind of incest, porn at the age of eight, then that that's in your brain forever. That is hardwiring you. You're going to have a physical reaction to that that you cannot help. And the chapter that I do about porn is about a boy called Sam, who I've known since he was three. And in How to Be a Woman, which was published in 2011, I think he was eight. And in that, I talk about the kind of porn that I'd want for women, and which are, you know, less male gaze, more expansive, psychedelic, joyful, tender, with some women coming in it. And uh, at the end of it, I go, you know, and I want this not only for the girls, but for the boys, the eight-year-old boys I know. Like, you know, I hope when Sam is of age to start watching pornography, there's something joyful and gleeful and feminist and fabulous out there for him. And I, he's 22 now, and I went on holiday with him two years ago, and he went, yeah, it's funny because when that book came out, like when I was I was eight or nine, and I read that you hoped that I would see great pornography when I grew up, and I'd already seen porn, I'd already seen it, and it was it was horrible stuff, and he was already at the start of what turned out to be a, a massive struggle with porn addiction, which conflated with his OCD and ended up with him becoming so anxious and depressed that he crashed out of uni, he couldn't sleep at night, his dad was having to get into bed with him to help him get to sleep, because he was so 
screwed up and anxious and driven mad with intrusive thoughts about the porn that he'd seen. And that chapter about sort of his struggles with it and how he's he's overcome it was, that's the one that all the parents of teenage boys that I know are reading and just kind of going, oh my God, <laughs> is this is this what's happening? Because he's like, every boy I know is watching this stuff. Like it would be unthinkable for a boy to say that he's not watching very extreme online pornography all the time. What do you think you can do about that? Well, first of all, we need to know. I mean, we are unaware of it as parents, like because the algorithms push you in different ways. Like all these social media platforms know just from your age and your sex if you're a young man and they will push different things, even into something as vanilla as Instagram that is completely different to what I'm seeing on Instagram. I was wholly unaware of this. Instagram knows I'm a 40-year-old woman doing a kitchen extension that loves spaniels. So all I'm seeing is <laughs> fabulous cougars and spaniels. And I presume, I'm like, oh, well, the internet's okay. I don't know why people go on about how bad it is. And then I looked at my teenage teenage boys algorithms that I know and they as you know Sam pointed out like it's girls in tiny yoga pants doing like really it's not yoga it's sexy and then at the bottom there's the link to their OnlyFans sites where you can immediately go and see them doing porn and even my male friends dads concerned dads who are just interested in politics and schnauzers they show me their social uh, media algorithms and they're being pushed saucy ladies every fourth or fifth post the women definitely aren't aware of what the men are seeing and even the dads aren't aware of how bad it is for the teenagers we're all in our little silo and generationally it means that kind of unwittingly we're throwing our kids to the wolves because we've got no idea of what they're what world they're actually in that's an ace diagnosis but is there a way of preventing that I mean, you say, you know, we need to see what they're doing. I mean, is it more surveillance and more parental controls or a wholesale reform of the, you know, free speech laws around pornography? Or- Obviously, it starts with being aware of it, which is why in that chapter I'm going like, you know, and hopefully this chapter on pornography means that, you know, I mean, it's incredibly hard to go and talk to your kids and go, how many massive erect penises and gaping bumholes have you seen this week? So hopefully the this chapter is the way that you can just go. <laughs> Well, cat it's written this like kind of and one of the tips that I've discovered for if you want to know what's happening in your kids lives if you ask them a direct question about their lives they will not answer it uh, because they don't want to let you down or make you angry or make you sad but if you go are your friends seeing extreme online pornography what are your friends algorithms like are any of your friends having problems with porn kids will generally tell you about their friends and when they're talking about their friends they're talking about themselves so first of all we need to be aware of it and we need to go into that territory and see what it is they're seeing i get so many people who are involved in education and child support coming to my gigs and talking to me afterwards and one of them told me an astonishing fact that when the rapist and mass murderer ted bundy was just about to be put to death he said i blame everything that i did on the pornography that i saw like that absolutely made me who I was. And I do wonder if in the future there might be some class action cases from children who've seen very violent online pornography and are like kind of, how could I have got access to this? And this has provably, demonstrably hardwired me to have the sexual fantasies that, you know, have, have damaged me. You know, I now suffer from PTSD. So that would be a big thing further down the line. But yeah, the first thing is being aware of what it is. And secondly, just things like looking at the categories on on porn. You know, first of all, it's so male gaze. All you see is lists of the kind of women that are on there. You know, it's clearly not for women. There's no Mark Ruffalo looking adorably crumpled at 7am at an antiques <laughs> fair in New Jersey, which was the porn that I would very much like to see. Uh, Aslan comes. You see, that's in the mainstream. <laughs> 
I want that so much. Um, you can get you can get Ruffalo on the on the ordinary web. <laughs> yeah, but then I want him to take off his clothes and say my name in a loving way. So um, oh right, yeah. So um, so yeah. The first thing is just starting. You know, is just being aware of it and talking about it to your kids because, like, you you just, your kids need to be able to say that this stuff is scaring them, like kind of or, or how they feel about it. And also, parents have the information, which is key. Which is, you think this is your sex education? This isn't sex. It's pornography. It's people at work. When you're watching people strangling each other, they've signed a contract for what they're doing. They've they've practiced it. They've rehearsed it. They've got witnesses around them. They can stop it if anything goes wrong. If you're copying something you've seen people do at work, it's basically like a stunt. And you're a, you know a semi tipsy fifteen year old horny boy and girl trying this for the first time. This could go terribly wrong for you. That the rise in sexual strangulation, like most of the teenage girls I know, have been very unexpectedly strangled during sex and the women of my age that I know who've been divorced and gone out there onto the dating scene are reporting the same thing they come back and go what is this this was not invented last time I was out there this is and it's not talked about it's suddenly like here's your strangle and of course if you're strangling someone the, the primary method of communication for which you would tell someone it might not be going well has been cut off because you're literally choking someone <laughs> and you know there, there are, there's, there's over 60 deaths recorded as being sexual strangulation that have gone wrong and many women's groups are very concerned about the amount of times that rough sex gone wrong has been cited in what are clearly murders because if you're a man on the... Well it's sometimes you know, it's the Fifty Shades defence yeah, isn't it? Yeah totally and just men go yes you wanted me to do this and when you actually read the state that the women bodies were found in the, the campaign is i can't consent i couldn't consent to this so these are dangerous games for kids to be playing you know sex should be fun and explorative and tender and ridiculous and involves silly noises and falling off the bed and kind of being open with each other and i can't believe that we've made sex so dark and so dangerous so dangerous like kind of you know there are kids you know who really are at risk of killing each other just to become basically dizzy during sex that's what strangulation is and i beg these children to simply do what every previous generation has done which is either hold your breath or use poppers like kind of that's just the, the traditional old ways are the best poppers up the bum no one's gonna die <laughs> that's what your sensible mum is saying Put that's that on my, the back of your book. yes sensible mum advice amyl nitrate but something that's seems to be a kind of thread here though is is this question of power because you know kessinger's great line that power is the ultimate aphrodisiac the way pornography seems to be presenting sex and indeed you know power is deeply concerned as you say with the way that 14 and 15 year old boys are frightened of feminism and femininity is that you know it's all about domination control power of women andrew tate saying you know you can control women you can tell them what to do you can make them do what you want how do you get that out of the equation by explaining that what a rough deal power is, like kind of it doesn't solve anxiety, it doesn't solve depression. It basically reversing the clots 50 to 100 years and having it that men have power over women economically, physically, politically again, is not going to make a 15-year-old boy who's struggling with his GCSEs and he's worried about his willy feel better. Like, first of all, he's not going to become powerful. Secondly, we can't reverse 
the status of women politically and economically. We can't go back to one income household. The economies of the, of the first world would collapse. That's just it's simply not going to happen. So the idea that this is being peddled to teenage boys rather than things like having a closer friendship group, you know, being able to talk, just things like your body, like, you know, so much of human misery, I think when people think that they've got like, a, you know, a political or emotional problem, often it's just feeling really unhappy in your body. And there's very rarely a time that you'll feel more unhappy in your body than when you're a teenager. You're turning from a child into an adult and it feels weird and suddenly you're sprouting stuff and your arms and legs are everywhere and you're worried no one's ever going to want to touch you and oh it's just a fucking bin fire i would never want to go through it again but again feminism and again when i think boys are angry with feminism and they think girls are winning i actually think that's an envy because if you look at girls something like the body positivity movement there are fat girls all over the internet now sitting in their bikinis taking joyful pictures of their roles and their stretch marks and hundreds of comments underneath for me the strangers or friends going yes queen you go fire emoji dancing girl emoji there is no fat teenage boy in a pair of trunks taking a picture of himself and having that kind of support. Again, that fear of being either being called gay, like, you know, oh, you bender, why are you, why are you taking a picture of yourself in your pants? Or the, the, the idea that it might be threatening for a boy to show pictures of his body. And again, that's another thing that, you know, the word heartbreaking is the one that I think I use most in this book because the idea that you're seen as a threat that you go from a being a child, suddenly, you know, you're, you're pushing six foot and people are scared of you. Like you can't, in more than a woman, I talked about teenage boys, men in playgrounds when a child gets lost and they're just looking around for a woman to go and rescue the child. Because if a man goes and approaches a lost child in a playground, people might think he's threatening. They might think he's a paedophile. And human beings want to be trusted and want to help. But the fact that men are so often seen as a threat or predatory that's heartbreaking for human beings. You know, we want to help. We want to be part of a community and to basically be seen as a weapon, to be inadvertently weaponized as soon as you look like a man. That's a huge sorrow and a, a huge fear. And I, I hate that for our teenage boys. That's you, you shouldn't think that you're going around scaring people. And most importantly, like in the last 15 years, just talk about females' bodies. Like every mother I know talks to their teenage girl about their vagina and be proud of it and let's talk about it. You know, you can go on Etsy and get beautiful, be proud of your vagina merchandise and beautiful Georgia O'Keefe-inspired posters. And like, you know, this generation of feminists are so pussy power, talking about my vagina. It's amazing. The idea of a dad talking to his teenage son about his penis and being proud of it I've been talking about this every night on stage for the last week and it still feels so weird and alarming to me that I'm saying it. It sounds mad and unthinkable and wrong, but it seemed as equally mad and unthinkable as wrong in, say, 1997 for women to be talking to their daughters about their vaginas. So we know these things can change and we have to make boys feel happy in their bodies. They can't walk around feeling like what they are is a, a shame or something to feel guilty about or a secret or is taboo or is a threat. Like this is an awful psychological place to be in in these like fragile years. I was interested in you saying that men don't pay attention to their clothes. I mean, I'm kind of guilty of this as falling deeply into the stereotype. They don't show off their masculinity. They don't show off their clothes. They don't peacock really. But at the same time, they're deeply self-conscious about and unhappy about their bodies. You said that men are always like, oh, I need to lose, lose weight. I'm, my cock's too small. My legs are too skinny. My, you know, all this stuff. What, where is that coming from? Because it's, it's sort of, it's on the one hand, they're, they're 
showing a kind of ostentatious disregard for physical appearance, and on the other, it's really bumming them out. As part of the more unhappy parts of my research, I spent a lot of time on incel websites reading what sort of like, you know, extreme misogynists who feel sort of utterly alienated from society and are hateful of women are saying. And a big thing there is that sort of women are in charge of sexual capital, kind of like, you know, any women can get laid. She can sort of gussy herself up and go out uh, and have sex, but that isn't available to boys. And it's true. Like, I, you know, I was a very fat, very unattractive teenage girl and with a wonder bra and some eyeliner, you put on the sexy dress and you can go and have sex. There isn't that kind of armory or disguise or transformation that you can make if a teenage boy. If you're a spotty, overweight boy with hair that you haven't quite worked out what to do with, how can you make yourself sexy and attractive on a night out? Given that men are, you know, in this era, obviously it was different in different eras, not allowed to dress up, disguise themselves, peacock, create themselves in the way that we see gay men do, then all they can fall back on in terms of their sexual attractiveness in the argument of incels and people like Andrew Tate is, well, then you must be very, very muscular and strong, borderline violent and wealthy, because that's the only way that you can accrue sexual capital. And my offer is that rather than spending 15 hours in the gym and becoming the soon-to-be-jailed lord of a sex trafficking ring in Romania, how about if you were just allowed to wear a more flattering pair of trousers and experiment with how you look? It's a far more achievable route to getting laid and being happy because the ability to transform yourself and self-create yourself and being given options for that, I hate that the only option for boys that's being peddled at the moment, the only person who's really stepped into the vacuum that we've had in the last 15 years to go, masculinity is great and I stand up for boys is Andrew Tate and I hate that that's the only option we've got I want there to be a man that comes along and go or here's a makeover I'm kind of like I just, I just rather boys were having fabulous makeovers than feeling that they had to become kind of you know awful rageful incels sex trafficking women across Europe well, I want to leave the leave the dark stuff alone in a, in a second but there's something in the book that I did want to ask you about you talk about a sort of engulfing fear, at least in the, the younger boys you've talked to, of false accusations of rape. Yes. And you say, I think, somewhere that, look, in a way we're all in this together because girls are frightened men are going to rape them and boys are frightened women are going to say that men have raped them. Yeah. Is there a danger there, though, that that sort of slight false equivalence? Because we know, I think, though you'll correct me if I'm wrong, statistically, like, False accusations of rape are extreme outliers, that there aren't millions and millions of them, but actual no-shit rape is a really, you know, much, much more common than, you know, one in four, yeah. I think you said. Yeah, well, that that's that's very much, I, I, I hope that came across when I was writing about this, because like the, the argument that's being put to me when I, I'm doing these events and was in the, the one on International Women's Day that sort of kick-started this whole thing where the men hijacked it, was they were going, the girls wanted to talk about sexual assault and rape. And the boys were going, yeah, but we're equally scared of being either A, stabbed or B, falsely accused of rape allegations, and that will ruin our lives. And so in the book, I'm very firmly going, look, I hear that this is something you're worried about. I totally hear that you're, this is what you're worried about. But here are the facts, because you're not having conversations with grownups who know these things. Like I now am going to be the grown up in the room that tells you this. It's 2% of all false rape allegations are proven to be false. The rest are rape allegations that were proven to be true whereas one in four women will be sexually assaulted or raped and it's and we know it's higher than that because it's massively underreported the amount of convictions are have basically made rape legal in this country and also rape statistics are only collated until women are 60 after that it's not counted as rape we just simply don't count 
rape statistics for women once they're either 60 or 70. So it's, it's like it doesn't count if you were very elderly and being raped. That's extraordinary. Is that because they're, they're regarded by the law as, as no longer being sexual creatures or mattering? I guess, yeah. That would be, had I the time, a campaign that I would run where it was just like, can you just explain this to me because it's you're just kind of going well they wouldn't care at that age like they just don't count as human beings anymore i'd love to have the logic of that explained so so in that chapter i'm very firmly going i hear i totally you know with all of this i'm going every every single chapter is a thing that men are scared of or complain about that isn't being talked about and i'm like let's talk about it but here are the facts and also let me give you some advice in the same way that older women have done sterling work in convincing younger women not to fancy bad boys anymore it doesn't work out it's it's just a terrible plan but similarly, I think the older men need to start telling boys that this old canard that I've heard quite often, which is like, it's the crazy girls you want to get in bed. No one fucks better than a crazy girl. Those are the ones you want to screw. The older men need to be telling the younger men, no. no. When you say crazy girl, you're talking about someone who's struggling with mental illness. and He's probably quite drunk at a party and kind of acting out because they're having a terrible time. That's not the girl you want to take home and have sex with or try and have sex with because she's ill. She, You shouldn't be having sex with her. Let her get some therapy. And that could end up, those are the kind of girls who, from a combination of shame or being mentally ill or stuff that's going on in their families, might be the ones that are more likely to falsely accuse you of rape later on. So I'm just trying to do some sort of common sense. It's like, I feel like my vibe has always been the kind of wise old, slightly dirty auntie in the shed at the bottom of the garden who on Christmas Day takes, <laughs> takes all the teenagers down the bottom of the garden sort of like as a fag and an Aperol spritz and go, okay, your parents won't tell you this, but Auntie Kat's going to tell you the real stuff. Like we've talked a bit about Andrew Tate, who is one of the sort of manosphere type influences and obviously particularly effective younger, younger boys. But Jordan Peterson is regarded as a more respectable sort of thinker about masculinity among older people that's a crock yeah according to you well yeah I so I had lots of people coming up to me boys and girls going you know for a couple of years going have you read Jordan B Peterson like that's great advice right I'd be he's like saying new stuff I'm intrigued by him have you read him I think he's great so I finally read his oeuvre so I know him as being Time magazine saying he is the most important intellectual of our generation. Like kind of, you know, he's won these awards. He sold 8 million books. Like kind of, he's Canadian. He wears a suit. This all seems very respectable. He's, you know, he's, he's a psychologist. These, the, the books have massive endnotes about all the places that he's, he's quoted and stuff. So I went into it going, well, I am from a council estate in Wolverhampton. I never went to school. I never went to university. I am about to be dazzled by the intellect of this man. Okay, let's go. Public intellectual. Yes. And I, halfway through, I was like, Am I just on glue or is this just a crock of shit? First of all, I would never take life advice from a man whose life appears to be miserable. And he's just, he's a clearly clinically depressed, fundamentalist, right wing Christian. There's a bit where I start to list all the times in his books. He says things like, life is misery, life is suffering. You know, we know what hell is. It is here already on earth. Like he's like, I, I would not want a teenage boy to be reading this kind of, astonishingly bleak nihilistic view of the world secondly a huge amount of his argument is right there on sort of like i think page 10 of uh rules of life is him explaining why men need to be dominant and must never lose in an argument and must always be aggressive because in lobsters if a lobster loses an argument, a chemical reaction happens in its body and then in its brain, which makes its brain liquefy. And it is then permanently for the rest of its life, a submissive 
lesser beta lobster. It essentially becomes brain damaged and is the kind of gimp of the sexy, aggressive winning lobsters. And he goes, and as this happens in the lobster community, this is what would happen with men. You must always be aggressive and you must always win a fight. First of all, generally, if someone cites a single animal in the animal kingdom as an example or a way of understanding human behavior, I think you should run a mile. There there are billions of creatures on this earth. You know, there are hornets that vibrate so fast they can cause fire out of their bum holes. You know, there are there are animals that can change sex. There are, you know, giraffes piss on each other as part of their courtship ritual. We diverged from lobsters evolutionarily 800 million years ago. We are very different to lobsters. Lobsters piss out of their eyes. Lobsters have big, delicious hands. And if humans were like lobsters and our brains dissolved and we were essentially destroyed every time we lost, then the Olympics would be a bloodbath and even a Christmas game of boggle would be a human rights issue. Like clearly human beings lose all the time and survive it. And also I just think it's a terrible message to tell boys you must never lose or else you'll be brain damaged for the rest of your lives. One of the biggest things that humans and particularly men need to learn is to learn to cope with losing to learn to cope with the fact that sometimes you screw up or sometimes it doesn't go your way or sometimes someone's better than you and to be fine with that and to, you know, to use a phrase I don't often use, to be man enough to just go, yeah, I lost that one. Okay, is there anything I can learn from this onwards and upwards rather than just go, my brain has melted. I am a sad beta lobster, Jordan B. Peterson. <laughs> Wish you'd warned me about this earlier. And then on top of that, him being a public intellectual and stuff has massively been superseded by his activity on Twitter in the last year or so, where he it just just seems to be unhinged. I mean, his his rank transphobia is extraordinary. Uh, he seems to Justin Trudeau is the antichrist. He's anti-vax. He doesn't believe in climate change, and he just seems like a permanently angry man who just has he doesn't realise how radicalised he's become within his own silo. So, I I do not find him a useful source of information for uh, for teenage boys. And also on top of that, the thing that people cite most often is that you know, oh, he tells you to make your bed every morning and always like stroke a cat when you see it in the street and it's like yeah like your mum has been saying that to you for years and you probably just told her to shut up you know every fluffy hun instagrammer is constantly petting posting a picture of a cat going always pet a cat in the street you know these inferior women that you would sneer at you're you're, you're half hun half kind of miserable existentialist kind of fundamentalist christian this is such a weird thing that we've chosen to be the quote cleverest man in the world right now but you've got a long list of the sort of qualities, uh, acculturated qualities you say that are are problematic with men to do with difficulty talking and maintaining friendships and body self-image and all these other sort of aspects of it. And then you've got a list of all the, towards the end, to cheer everyone up, you have a list of things to be appreciated about men, which you say is not 100% different from things to be appreciated about dogs. Um I need to qu- quickly qualify that because I got a lot of shit about that on the internet because that was that was quoted out of context. So I went on Lorraine Kelly, uh, Lorraine Kelly's show, and uh, she said you're basically saying men are like dogs. And the because con- obviously social media is a contract stripping machine. So I was like, the last chapter was like we need to talk about what's good about masculinity, what's good about men, something positive. In the same way we've been bigging up our girls for the last ten years, let's actually talk what's brilliant about men and what we love about them. So I start listing all these attributes like you know they're just the loyal full of enthusiasm they sort of get back up and start again like you know they just they're playful and then i go self-deprecatingly 
I realize that I am in a patronizing way, basically describing dogs. So I go on Twitter and ask men what is good about men. And the men start replying and no less than five of them list their best attributes and go, basically, I'm a dog. Basically, I know I'm describing dogs like men are dogs. So it's it's men that were saying this. I do want to make that clear to angry dad 465 who's been riding my fucking dick about this for the last six weeks. Like, please, it's going on again. Go and argue with the men. They said this. It's I'm literally quoting a man. Well, all these qualities, both the problematic ones and the you know uh, encouraging ones, do you see them as to any extent innate or evolved in terms of the differences between men and women? Or do you think both masculinity and femininity are entirely cultural artefacts or entirely kind of generationally abolishable? And if they are, should they be? I think huge amounts of it are cultural. Obviously, I know incredibly masculine women. I think it's really interesting that we're in this period of like gender fluidity and non-binary, like kind of like that is the younger generation, however crazy or problematic it might seem to an older generation. That's a younger generation who are essentially turning around to us and going, well, you didn't do too well on gender. Like kind of like, you know, your your gender roles have been really weird and you keep moaning about it. So like, we're just going to abolish all of it and we're just going to be everything. Let's see how that works for a generation, which I'm fascinated to to observe and like want to see how that pans out. So we, you know, we all know women who are, you know, have incredibly masculine traits. We all know men who have incredibly feminine traits. Obviously, all gender roles are on a spectrum. I don't know how much of it is innate in biology because we are still so gendered. Like, again, it's fascinating the amount of people who are involved in education and child support services who I'm talking to at my gigs who are going seven is where it changes. Sort of up until the age of seven, the boys and girls are essentially the same. They play together. They use the same toys. Boys are unashamed to cry. So they're just as likely to cry as girls at school if they're upset about something. And then it seems to be at seven, there's a sudden branching off and suddenly boys don't want to do anything that's associated with being a girl. So if a boy suddenly cries at school now at seven, it's like, oh, you've been a girl. Like it suddenly becomes a kind of, oh, Philip's crying. Like, oh, man, he's he's crying like a girl. And that they... You say girl brains are fully developed by 11, but boys take till 15. That's my understanding. And the other really big developmental difference, so if we're talking biology, and the one that I found key and to me seemed to sort of explain a huge amount of stuff about the state of being particularly a teenage boy at the moment, is that boys find motor skills develop later than girls. So they, they, they struggle with learning to write. They cannot learn to write neatly for at least a year or two later than girls do. And anyone who's been in a school can confirm that because you see the girls writing on the wall very neat. They understand what margins are. Boys, it's all over the place. So for boys... To go to school and know that you're going to fail in something already is psychologically, I think, problematic and difficult to know that you just cannot do this thing where the girls are succeeding. And then because there's a knock on effect between reading and writing, boys, then when they start to read, choose things that are less text dense and more graphic heavy. So boys start writing reading graphic novels and superhero stories and these are stories about quests and superheroes and gangs and heists and plans and things exploding and battles and struggles and plans whereas girls are reading things like Anne of Green Gables or Little Women where it's about normal girls struggling with normal childhood and puberty like kind of Joe March's glove gets covered in lemonade and that's a whole chapter and so we don't and this was a recurrent thing I got with the men that I interviewed. Some of them friends that I've known for years, who, when I was interviewing them as their lives as boys and men, were suddenly telling me about horrific abuse they'd experienced as kids or massive periods of suicidal depression, complete nervous breakdown, struggles with addiction, terrible violence. All of them had been involved in massive fights. And these were all things I didn't know. 
even though I'd known them for years. And I was just like, why didn't you talk about that or ever discuss these things? And they all said variants on the same thing, which is like, oh, that's normal. Or I don't want to make a fuss. Kind of like, oh, that's boring. Sort of like, that's little. I, I wouldn't want to read stories about normal teenage boys' lives because normal boys' and men's lives are boring. I want escapism from the stuff that I read. And so the only book I managed to find that was actually about a normal teenage boy, he wasn't a superhero and wasn't bitten by a spider and wasn't part of a massive conspiracy theory, was The Diary of Adrian Mole, which was written by a woman. So that's another kind of like, we cannot tell what's biology. And because obviously, biologically, that's started by boys not developing their fine motor skills at the same time as girls. But then culturally, it becomes this massive thing, which you follow it through to 10 to 15 years. Chick flicks, rom-coms, girls, you know, women's culture is about real women's lives and how you cope with real day-to-day problems, particularly during an adolescence. There isn't those stories, the kind of the meta-narrative, the archetypes for boys aren't you live on a council estate, you're worried about your willy, kind of you're struggling with your GCSEs, you wonder if anyone's going to kiss you. It's, oh my God, you came from another planet and now you've got to kill a wise evil owl. Like kind of, it's not terribly useful. Fun, but not terribly useful. Well, hopefully things will move on. Catelyn Moran, thank you very much for your time. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you, darling. <laughs>